Welcome to the podcast of Fairmount Presbyterian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where we feature our worship sermons. Listen again to past sermons from home, when you are traveling, or wherever you are. Listen in if you need a moment of reflection, inspiration, and love. For the word of God and scripture, for the word of God around us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Well, as uh, we just talked about with the kids, this weekend we celebrate Juneteenth, a day when, as a nation, we remember that on June 19th, 1865, every single person living in this country was finally declared to be free. And I want to take this moment also to give thanks to our personnel committee and our session for unanimously voting to make Juneteenth a paid holiday for our entire staff. Uh, And so please note that the church will be closed tomorrow as we celebrate God's work of liberation. And it's fitting then that our scripture texts this morning are all about God's work of liberation. This morning I'll weave together narratives of three bodies of water that to me tell the story of God's liberating love. The Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds in Egypt the Alabama River, and the waters that I just poured into our baptismal font right here on the chancel. Let's begin in Selma, Alabama. Selma is the seat of Dallas County in Alabama. And in 1961, African Americans made up more than half of the population there, about 15,000 people. But of those 15,000, only 130 were registered to vote, less than 1% of the black population in Dallas County. There are several reasons why this number was so low nearly a century after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments in the Constitution gave black men the right to vote, and more than four decades after the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. For starters, the state of Alabama had many laws on its book like poll taxes and literacy tests intended to disenfranchise black voters. And another tactic in Dallas County that they invented was to limit access to voter registration by closing their office. It was open just two days out of every month for registration. And on those days, Hundreds of black residents would wait in line all day just to register to vote. Of those who made it to the front of the line, many were denied registration for one reason or another. The rest waited in line for hours only to be told that the registration office was closed for the day and they'd have to come back next month. And when all those more covert exclusionary tactics fail, they took a more heavy-handed approach to block registration. On July 6, 1964, which was one of the two registration days that month, future Congressman John Lewis led 50 black Dallas County residents to the courthouse to register, but County Sheriff Jim Clark arrested them. And three days later, a local judge issued an injunction forbidding three or more people to gather under the sponsorship of any civil rights organization. In the 1950s and 60s, 
a growing movement of black pastors, students, activists, and others reorganized in Selma to win the right to vote. And like the Israelites in Egypt, they were met with hard hearts and stubborn resistance again and again. After encountering persistent and pernicious resistance, everyone reaches their breaking point, a point at which they say no more. Enough is enough. In the story of the Israelites in Egypt, it was literally the straw that broke their backs, the extra straw that they had to gather to make bricks each day to build the Pharaoh's buildings. And for the black community in Selma, the straw that broke their backs was the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson, a 26-year-old church deacon who, while unarmed, participating in a peaceful protest in Selma on February 26, 1965, was shot and killed by a state trooper. At his memorial service, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Jimmy Lee Jackson's death says to us that we must work passionately and unrelentingly to make the American dream a reality. And so in the days following Lee's murder, they got to work on a plan to do just that. The Israelites in Egypt, like the black community in Selma, had reached their breaking point. And it was at that very moment that God prepared them to leave. God gave them very specific instructions on what to do the night before they would journey out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. The Israelites followed those instructions from God, and this time, instead of being denied their freedom, there were none of Pharaoh's men to block their exodus. But as we just heard in the story, their escape towards freedom quickly became more complicated as Pharaoh sent his troops after them. The Israelites panic, and Moses told them, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch as God rescues us today. God tells Moses to lift his staff over the sea, and God sends a strong wind from the east to split the waters so that they can walk across on dry land to freedom. And here's where I beg you, don't get hung up on the historical accuracy of this story. Because I know many of you read this and you're like, yeah, right, that never really happened. But don't get hung up on the history of it. Because if we get stuck there, then we miss out on the real beauty of this story. And for me, that beauty comes in the ways that God is intimately involved from all sides in the Israelites' liberation. Throughout Exodus, God leads the Israelites to the promised land in the form of a pillar of cloud going ahead of them, ushering them towards freedom. But in verse 19 of our reading today, it says that God's pillar of cloud goes behind them to protect the Israelites. And then after they've crossed safely, God returns again to the front to lead them forward. God is present and active in, the Israel's, uh, in Israel's liberation, and God partners with them to find freedom. The parting of the sea certainly seems like the miracle in this story, 
But maybe the real miracle that we could focus on here is that a marginalized people found a way to reclaim their humanity from a powerful empire that sought to take it away. In the wake of Jimmy Lee Jackson's murder, black leaders in Selma were more determined than ever to find their freedom. Since their efforts to win voting rights in Dallas County had fallen on deaf ears, they decided to travel to the Capitol, where they would call on Alabama's governor, George Wallace, to protect black voters. They devised a plan for a peaceful march from Selma to Montgomery, a 54-mile trek that would take several days. And on March 7, 1965, on the first Sunday in Lent, 600 marchers gathered at Brown AME Church and prepared to begin the journey east. The Alabama River snakes through the countryside between Selma and Montgomery. The marchers would have to cross it several times along their journey, but the very first crossing was just a few short blocks from the church where they gathered. And when the marchers approached that first crossing over the river, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were met there by a wall of law enforcement officers. The marchers, standing in tight lines, stopped short of the officers. They were told to disperse, but they stood their ground. The officers then proceeded to walk forward in a straight line into the marchers and began to push them back. And then some of the marchers began to retreat, and that's when everything went off the rails. Some of the officers began shoving the marchers, beating them with clubs. Tear gas was set off, and mounted troopers charged on them on horseback. Eighty-seven marchers were hospitalized that day, including John Lewis, who suffered a skull fracture, and Linda Blackman Lowry, a 14-year-old girl who received 35 stitches on her face. Footage of this brutal attack interrupted Sunday evening primetime television programs all across the country, and the, the day came to be known as Bloody Sunday. Like the Israelites, the black community in Selma was denied an exodus. And as their resolve to be free strengthened, so did the brutality. Two days after Bloody Sunday, on Tuesday, March 9th, they gathered at the church again, this time even more people, about 2,500 people, including white clergy and nuns and other activists from around the country who had poured in after seeing this on television. Because of a court order prohibiting the march, Dr. King led the group up to the bridge where he prayed, and then they turned around and went back to the church. And many called this second march a failure. But a few days later, on March 15th, President Lyndon B. Johnson convened a joint session of Congress to demand that they pass a bill protecting voting rights for black Americans. And at the end of his speech, LBJ said, it is not just Negroes, but really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice, and we shall overcome. Black organizers in Selma had gathered to watch the president's address on TV, 
And according to Reverend C.T. Vivian, who was in that room, when President Johnson spoke those words, the entire room erupted in cheers. But when he looked over at Dr. King, he was just sitting there quietly with tears streaming down his face. Two days after the president's speech, the court order prohibiting their march was overturned. And so on Sunday, March 21st, two weeks after Bloody Sunday, 8,000 marchers gathered at Brown Chapel AME for a third time to begin their 54-mile walk to Montgomery. And that morning, they finally crossed over the Alabama River. The exodus from Egypt, Juneteenth, the march over Edmund Pettus Bridge, these are stories that are important for us to tell and retell because they remind us how freedom is won, how God's work of liberation is accomplished. And we must listen to these stories carefully because God's work of liberation is ongoing. We should listen because we are not yet free. And God is leading us into new waters in our journey towards freedom. Along this journey, there is always a Pharaoh type who threatens to block our path to freedom. The Pharaoh who stands ready to take away our freedom to vote. This isn't just something that happened in the South in the 60s. It's something that's happening here in Ohio again this summer on August 8th with the special election on issue one to take away our voice in state government. There is the Pharaoh who stands in the way of every person's freedom to love who they love and to commit their life to that person in marriage. There is the Pharaoh who takes away the freedom of our children Children like Darrell Travis, a 15-year-old boy who was bound over and sentenced to 21 years in adult prison a couple weeks ago. But as we confront these pharaohs, we can remember that God is on the side. God is by the side of all those who struggle for freedom. God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. In the waters of our baptism, we meet this God who loves us by liberating us. But baptism is more than just a momentary act. It is a lifelong sacrament. It is the beginning of a lifelong journey with Christ to claim and to proclaim the freedom that God promises us. Throughout our lives as Christians, we can return to these waters of baptism, return to be reminded of God's promise and God's grace, return to be filled again with the strength and the hope we need to keep on this journey, to keep marching towards our collective freedom. Because in the words of Maya Angelou, no one of us can be free until everybody is free. This I deliver to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Amen.
We thank you for listening to a worship episode from Fairmount Presbyterian Church. Revisit this podcast site weekly for new worship episodes. Have a beautiful and blessed day.